Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, my mother always wanted me to, to speak in an Episcopal church, although I don't think this was her <laughs> imagination at the time. She thought I looked really good in the robes. Um, I, I want to thank Clark for all he's done uh, to make this possible. Um, and what I want to do, and one of the interesting things about being a, a presidential historian is that you can talk about today, yesterday, and everything else. And so here I am speaking with my back to where Henry Adams lived, and I've written about Henry Adams. And here to my right, I uh, am speaking not too far from the uh, residence which Ulysses and Julia Grant spent the most time in their life, the White House. This is where they lived the most. Uh, Julia wanted to live here even longer, but her husband wouldn't hear of it. Um, and so as I got ready, um, to, uh, I was thinking about what to talk about today. Um, on Friday, you may know, that C-SPAN uh, came out with its rating of the presidents, rating and ranking. And um, uh, Ulysses S. Grant landed smack dab in the middle, number 22 of 43 presidents. Um, in other words, NHL playoff eligible. Um, <laughs> And, and you'd say, well, you know, why, why would we want to note that? I mean, 22 out of 43, which isn't a heck of a lot different than Grant's standing in West Point when he graduated 21st of 39. Um, why, why would we note that? Um, and I, I think looking at that poll and thinking about that poll and thinking how we evaluate presidents and what that says about the presidents, but what that says about us at the same time is something we, we ought to reflect upon uh, because it says something about the, the world we inhabit today as well as the world that these individuals inhabited and what people at the time thought of them. So I thought I'd go, I, there were 91 historians, including the other two speakers in the series, Joan Waugh and uh, Ron White, um, also were part of this panel, and I think that's actually worthy of note for other reasons I'll, I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, but what happened is they contacted 91 scholars. As an Islander fan, I pretended I was John Tavares, 91. Um, and uh, they went ahead and, and asked us to give a numerical rating to presidents on 10 categories, then process that, those numbers, and then came up with a ranking. So it's both a rating and a ranking process combined. Uh, old ways used to do this way that we would just try to rank people. And I've been in polls like this before, and just ranking people seemed to me unsatisfactory. Um, it's always interesting to see how these things are composed. Uh, there are no experts in the William Henry Harrison presidency in these polls. Um, uh, I actually would argue that a lot of the people who are doing the evaluations don't know very much about many of the presidents they're evaluating. So if someone becomes a biographer of one or two presidents, all of a sudden it's assumed they know about all the presidents. I talk about the American presidency and teach a course on it all the time, so I'm actually more familiar with the um, uh, now 44 occupants of that office, although I'm trying to make heads and tails of number 44 at this time. Um, people say, well, there's 45. Remember, Cleveland gets to count twice as 22nd and 24th. So I want to point out some of these categories and where, in fact, Grant seems to have skyrocketed since the first C-SPAN poll back in 2000. We see Grant as a fairly quiet, um, taciturn individual, but when it came to public persuasion, 
He got a score of 60.9, 19th among the presidents, which you would find surprising for a man who is, whose greatest skill with words was his personal memoirs and maybe his wartime dispatches, although I would argue that as President uh, Grant sometimes spoke very directly to the American people. Crisis leadership, 58.7, 21st of all these presidents. Economic leadership, which I found somewhat interesting because in the 19th century, actually American presidents couldn't exercise much economic leadership. He had a 47.1, 27th among the presidents, but a 10-slot jump from 2000. I'm not quite sure why that would have occurred, but there it is. Moral authority, 61.4, 19th among the presidents, a, a rise of 12 in the rankings since uh, 2000. International relations, where in fact the Grand Administration always had a good reputation in part because of the skill of his Secretary of State, Hamilton Fish. 60.4, 19th again, up 14 from uh, 2000. Administrative skills, and no one, while Grant was a very good administrator as a general, uh, one could ask all kinds of questions about his administrative skills and exactly what that term means, by the way. Um, and now as a dean, I can understand administrative skills in more bizarre ways than I ever had imagined. Uh, 40.837, that's his lowest ranking of all these rankings. So I assume corruption and things like that are included in this. Relations with Congress, we hear a lot about that nowadays. 54.6 or 20th, that's 11 slots up from 2000. Vision, the vision thing. Uh, 50.7, 23rd among the presidents, up 13, however, uh, from before. Equal justice, where he's actually ranked fairly well all along, 64.0, 10th among American presidents. And then the context of his times, a category I did not quite understand what that meant. It meant anything, I guess. He had a 58.0, 21st among the presidents, but up 12. So you can see in, in six of these categories, Grant jumped 10 or more spaces compared to his 2000 evaluation. And, and, and why do I note this? Because when I was a kid, you'd get little books about the presidents, and at that time the presidents would end with Lyndon Johnson by the time I was aware of these books. Um, and Grant in those presidential polls was always next to last. Only Warren G. Harding was less impressive than the hero of Appomattox. Um, and, and he would always, they, they categorize them then also by great, near great, average, below average, but Grant and Harding were always failure, <coughs> utter failure. And so if you look at it from that perspective during my lifetime, to go from next to last to right in the middle is actually fairly impressive. And in fact, of uh, the presidents, we talk about Grant's ranking has changed more than any other president's ranking. So why is that true? How do we evaluate presidents? What does that tell us about those presidents? What, what do those changing rankings tell us about the people who are doing the ranking as much as anything else? And I say this because in terms of Grant's reputation, while there are still people who see Grant as a ham-handed, bloodthirsty butcher, heedless of the human cost of conflict, most people today see Grant as a fairly capable and even inspired military commander. 
Now that many people see him as one of the great American generals. Some would rank him even higher on a global stage. Uh, but the fact of the matter is General Grant's done pretty well, and one of the reasons General Grant's done pretty well in terms of reputations is he won. When you accept Lee's surrender at Appomattox, you win. Uh, and it's always surprised me, therefore, when I come to Washington, and I know many of you live here now can appreciate this more than others, I, I gave a talk in 1990 about the Grant presidency, about reassessing his presidency, so at the beginning of all of this. And, you know, my first book on Grant was in 1991. If you look at ratings of Grant at that time, you can sort of mark from 1990 to 2017 as the rise of U.S. Grant's presidential reputation. And, and at the end of it, I was speaking in South Carolina, not exactly friendly territory for someone working on Union Generals Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman in particular. <laughs> South Carolinians have long memories. Um, uh, different white, uh, white South Carolinians have different memories than black South Carolinians, I want to add, since where I was speaking was in the middle of Ku Klux Klan country during Reconstruction. So historical memory cannot always be uh, uh, judged to be one thing. Uh, the, the fellow who was the um, uh, chair of the session uh, said, well, you know, one day there'll be Ulysses S. Grant Memorial in Washington. I sort of looked at him and said, there is one. <laughs> you see it every Sunday, if nothing else, on various news programs of the long shot of the United States Capitol. And you see, in fact, if you go there, that there's Grant looking westward in a very moving group of equestrian monuments all the way down the mall, past Washington, past Lincoln, keeping an eye on Robert E. Lee across the river. <laughs> and, and that monument now has been restored. And, and, and I tell you, you should go down and take another look at it, especially as the sun is setting, that the, it, 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 now the dark bronze shines and everything else. It's really quite impressive in a way that it has not been uh, uh, to this time. Before, it was just the power of the statuary uh, of this grim grant looking forward in what must have been a, a windy winter day. But now you look at it, 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 it pops to life. Uh, and so obviously at one time when that statue is erected in sort of that mall of heroes, when you go ahead and you, at that time, if you went to the Capitol, then there was John Marshall, who's been moved. Then there was Grant. Then you went down to Washington. Then you went down to Lincoln. That, that's a pretty impressive row of American heroes. So Grant's reputation is actually pretty high at the time that that uh, statuary is erected, although it's a statue of General Grant. Now, by the way, it's very hard to find statues of President Grant. And there are actually at least as many statues of President Grant outside of the United States as there are inside the United States. And we're talking single digits. The first one I came across uh, was, in fact, in the Illinois State Capitol, where if you go in the, uh, the Capitol and look up the, the one constructed in the 1870s, there's a statue of Grant in civilian clothes. And in fact, you have to figure out who he is because he looks so unusual uh, in that way. So, you know, we're talking about how do we rate these guys, and, and what, what, what's about our attitudes? I would argue that Grant suffered in his presidential reputation because the people who didn't like him issued what we, I guess, would now call fake history. Um, <laughs> and, and what I mean is that the people who did not like him, who nevertheless were very articulate, very skilled, 
very lyrical, including the guy who lived behind me, Henry Adams, who you would say, you know, horrific things about, you know, a great soldier might be a baby politician and the like. They controlled the writing of history about the Grant administration in the early 20th century. So his political opponents had the last word. And you can imagine that if you're writing, uh, if your life is being by, written by people who hate you, and anyone who's been through a contentious divorce understands what I'm talking about, um, that uh, you're not going to come off looking too good. And certainly that was the case with Grant. What we also know during that time is among white mainstream scholars, the reputation of perhaps the dominant issue of the Grant presidency, Reconstruction, was the kind of reputation embodied in the film Birth of a Nation. That Reconstruction was a disaster, that African Americans had still no rights that white men were bound to respect, as the Dred Scott decision said, and that it was a foolhardy social experiment to expect African Americans to assume an equal role in American political society. And so therefore, Grant supporting that policy must have been inferior, stupid, uh, led around the nose by others and the like. And so that, that picture is reinforced by the fact that very few of Grant's allies and supporters wrote memoirs that placed him in a different light. That you'd have to go back and uncover speeches or private correspondence, see what they'd have to say. And people didn't look for those things. Whereas other documents, Gideon Wells's diary, Secretary of Navy during the Lincoln and Andrew Johnson administrations. People who hated Grant helped to finance that diary. And it's a very interesting diary in that Wells would revise the diary entries in light of later circumstances. So he seems really smart. Everyone's diary would seem really smart if you could revise it. We, it wasn't until much later that we understood that the printed diary that appeared in 1911 was really a manufactured document in more than one way. So Grant's press isn't going to be high because his colorful, lyrical folks believing that Reconstruction was a disaster and the Grant administration was corrupt, etc., they take charge, and you can almost see that transition, by the way, from Theodore Roosevelt, who thought Grant a great man, to Woodrow Wilson, who did not. And Wilson, of course, the first real Southerner elected to the presidency uh, after Appomattox, had had an ax to grind against Grant some time, Birth of a Nation, other Grant biographies that come out in the 1920s, all hate Grant. And even if they can't deal with the generalship very well, they can take out the axes and the sledgehammers when it comes to the Grant presidency. So, what, what, so if you were a historian writing in the 1930s or 1940s, and there's a biography of Grant as president in 1935 by a fellow named William Bess Heseltine, that actually said people have underestimated Grant. He was a better politician than people thought. And then everyone dismissed the book. So it just sat there. Of course, just like they dismissed another book written in 19, published 1935, W.E.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction, they dismissed Heseltine as well. So they said, this, this stuff is not important. Because it, it, it ran athwart the conventional wisdom. And so when these ratings started coming out in the wake of World War II, with Arthur Schlesinger Jr. being one of the people at the spearhead of this, if you were a historian of the United States, you would clearly think Grant was a failure, 
that his administration was mired in corruption, that he was incompetent, and that his reconstruction initiative was a disaster. No one in their right mind would have pursued equal rights for all. That's the attitude in the late 1940s. And remember, a lot of the historians at that time, we think of the late 1940s as the beginning of the second civil rights movement, the second reconstruction. Uh, but the fact is, most of the historians, of course, are 50, 60 years old at that time as well. And so they're going to carry forward their prejudices, especially as they did with some detailed surveys. If you were a white southerner writing about Grant, you really hated him. And so one of the great white southern historians, for example, C. Van Woodward, in 1955 would write that Grant's administration was the nadir of American history. Now Woodward, who is one of the historical consultants uh, for Brown versus Board of Education on, on um, the NAACP side and Thurgood Marshall's side, nevertheless could never get rid of his being a white southern boy when it came to Grant. Never could, and we'll see that again in a, in a couple of minutes. So Grant's reputation through the 1940s, 1950s, into the 1960s is that failure, next to last. He couldn't even have the distinction of being last. <laughs> he just had to be next to last. Now people's attitudes began to change about a few things. By the 1960s, historians were looking at Reconstruction anew and deciding that it might have been a good idea to try to defend African American rights in the wake of emancipation and war. Uh, this is a movement I think is inspired in part by uh, the uh, civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s, and people want to link those things together, and never more clearly, I would argue, than in 1963 when Martin Luther King spoke his, uh, in front of Abraham Lincoln, the I Have a Dream speech, and that setting was deliberately chosen because King, in fact, had wanted to uh, uh, speak at Washington the Mall in part because President John F. Kennedy, he of the Profiles and Courage, uh, had declined to make much of a fuss over the uh, centennial of the Emancipation Proclamation. But even Kennedy, who back in the 1950s in Profiles and Courage had not spoken highly of President Grant, by the 1960s when it came to using federal force to protect African Americans seeking an education, began to think anew about this. And there's a story that one time he signed a document and he was going to have Pierre Salinger, his press secretary, go down and talk to the press about it. And um, he, he, he said, you know, Pierre, remember Jackie Kennedy had gone through the White House furniture. And he knew that the, the, the table he had used was the same table that Ulysses S. Grant had used to authorize intervention against the Ku Klux Klan in 1871. So Salinger begins to go down the hall, and then Kennedy's, well, you know, you know, Pierre, maybe I wouldn't point that out to the press quite yet, given everything that's going on. So even Kennedy's beginning, once you become president, you begin to see things differently than when you weren't uh, president. What's interesting, though, is that while during the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, Grant's reputation as a general went up, especially in the writings of people like Bruce Catton, his ranking as a president stayed mired at the bottom despite people's interest in changing the history of Reconstruction. Most of that scholarship focused on the years when Andrew Johnson was president, not when Grant was president. Um, so the old narrative was there, and in fact the old narrative continued through the 1970s into the publication of uh, William S. McFeely's Grant, a biography in 1981, 
where Grant clearly had decided that Grant did not support, McFeely decided that Grant did not support uh, civil rights for African Americans the way that Bill McFeely, writing from his study in New Haven, uh, would have done so had he been there many years ago. Sort of like that, you ask the quarterback after the game, why did you throw that interception? Um, <laughs> so, and in fact, when the book was reviewed, in the New York Review of Each Other's Books, as I like to call it, <laughs> by none other than his doctoral advisor, C. Van Woodward, I would always like my advisor to write, reviews of my book and national publications. Uh, Woodward decided this time to castigate Grant for being too much like Andrew Johnson. So before Grant had tried too hard in a failed policy, now we hadn't tried hard enough. It's all the Goldilocks approach to presidential uh, leadership. In other words, we didn't have a really good study of Grant's presidency at all. And one of the ways I can talk about this is Bruce Catton, who wrote powerfully on Grant as general, was relieved to find out that the contract for a Grant biography that he was fulfilling, contract began with Lloyd Lewis in 1950 with Captain Sam Grant, and Lewis died and Catton took over and wrote two more volumes. Uh, Catton was relieved to find out that he didn't have to extend his study beyond Appomattox, that he'd leave President Grant right where he was. There's no one taking up the Grant standard and McFeely's book which won the Pulitzer Prize for a biography, was seen as a compelling case that Grant was a failure, corrupt, uninterested, unable. And so that's where we are, the 1980s. Other views have changed, but still the biographers are where they are. Well, that's changed. Since 1991, we've had books on Grant that looked upon him in different ways, talked about his political skill, reassessed the, his policy towards Native Americans and African Americans alike, who now see him as a president fighting a fighting withdrawal against white supremacist terrorism in the American South, something which ever since September 11, 2001, we're more aware of, because people talk about terrorism being something imported, someone who taught in South Carolina for three years in Spartanburg County, I can tell you terrorism is as American as the Confederate flag. Um, and so therefore, people began to say, let's look at Grant anew. And slowly but surely, he became a safer biographical topic. You know that someone's doing well when everyone wants to jump on the train and write the book before. I'm sure there are Hamilton biographies being worked on right now by people <laughs> who want new musicals. And of course, the Hamilton biographer who penned the book that became a musical is now working on Grant. So Grant has now become a safe harbor for a lot of people. And yet I would argue that our evaluation of Grant is in part an assessment of what we believe to be important in our own life experience. We don't talk so much more about the corruption in the Grant administration. We understand it's there, but historical studies have shown that corruption was endemic in American politics at that time, and far smarter men than Grant, if you think Grant was dumb, and I don't, but if you think he was, far smarter men were fooled by the very people who supposedly fooled a gullible Grant. We also understand, I think, better uh, a tension between politics as the art of the possible and what was possible in the United States in the immediate after the, after the American Civil War, the widespread prevalence of racism and white supremacy, 
and not only in the South. One of the reasons Reconstruction collapses is because white Northerners turn to do other things. And if we say, well, those people, look at how quickly they gave up on an effort to rebuild society, regime change and the like, in our own time, we wanted to get out of certain places within a year. And those, and, and those places were not to be reincorporated in the United States, a much more difficult job than simply establishing a regime halfway around the world. So we see politics as the art of the possible, though I would have a caveat here that one sign of great presidential leadership is the ability to expand what is possible. And I would argue that, although, as this poll says, that Grant had a vision of equal justice, which he could speak very passionately about. I'll give you an example in a moment. Uh, on the other hand, Grant never really could expand the limits of the possible. He could not change people's minds. I mean, you know, one mind that would have been changed all the time was Ulysses S. Grant's. We forget. He was the last slaveholder to be president of the United States. Yet he celebrated the ratification of the 15th Amendment as the repudiation of the Dred Scott decision. And when terrorism ran rampant through the South in, in 18, the 1870s, he told Congress in 1875 uh, that while everyone complained about minor issues, that no way could be found to punish these miscreants who went, as he put it, unwhipped of justice in this boasted land of civilization and Christianity. When a president tells white Americans that you're a bunch of hypocrites, that's telling like it is, and that's an eloquence of a different sort, and we don't see Grant as eloquent, but no American president ever put it so plainly or directly. So now as we see Reconstruction as something that should have succeeded, even though we understand how difficult it was, we have a little more empathy for the task in front of Grant as he tried to balance sectional reconciliation with justice for African Americans. At a time we understand that corruption, while bothersome, was not the corruption of people on the take is nothing like the corruption of people shooting people in cold blood. We today talk about voter suppression, but what was Reconstruction but massive voter suppression? People talk about the election of 1876 and how Samuel J. Tilden had a big popular vote majority, and I go, yes, because other people decided they weren't going to get killed. In a free and fair election, Rutherford B. Hayes would have been easily the 19th president of the United States. And we talk about working with Congress. We have a new appreciation that Grant actually, in his way, learned to work with Congress, got his leadership, got legislation across, and that one of the problems of the Grant presidency was when they lost that majority in both houses of Congress in the election of 1874, when in a reaction against oppression and Reconstruction, the Democrats seized control of the House of Representatives. That ended all that uh, as well. So when I look at this from the long view, from a kid in the 1960s reading those facts about the president's books with all the little ratings and everything else. And then I go to last Friday when I see that Grant is smack dab in the middle, in part because more people, including Joan Waugh and Ron White, who have worked on Grant, were part of those 91 historians. So we now people actually have some understanding 
of the Grant presidency participating in those polls, we can see that Grant has actually risen to, I think, a fair assessment in the middle. A man of good intentions who did not always succeed, a, a man who tried but was sometimes overwhelmed, a man who himself admitted in 1876 that he did not have the political experience that one might have desired in a president of the United States. You rarely have a president apologize in his last annual message for his shortcomings, but Grant was human and had the integrity to do so. And so I'm going to end with something that just came out of the New York Times again two days ago. You think that historians are just mired in the past. And it was a column ostensibly about the current occupant of the Oval Office. But the way in which Gail Collins of the New York Times dealt with it was to go to Wheatland up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to talk to the people there who run the home of James Buchanan, who graces the bottom of this list. I would change this a little, by the way. When I voted, Andrew Johnson was at the bottom. I'm, there was no president. I cross my fingers at this point. There was no president who did as much harm to the United States as Andrew Johnson, who was a net negative. It had been better the office had been unoccupied for four years than Andrew Johnson being there. So the curator there of Wheatland turned around and said, you know, if my guy was rated worse, if he smelled, fell smack dab in the middle, he'd be lost. And Gail Collins agreed, saying, well, at least you know what's going on now. Whatever happens, this guy will not be a boring mediocrity, although the Buchanan interview was spurred by the notion that Trump would fall below Buchanan in the rankings. I guess if you're a James Buchanan fan, you desperately want that. <laughs> But the fact is that Ulysses S. Grant, who does now fall smack dab in the middle, was not a boring mediocrity, as I tweeted to Ms. Collins this morning, uh, and that it, it's time to understand Grant for his successes at the same time that we do acknowledge his failures. Historians are not cheerleaders, at least they're not supposed to be. In my own writing, they They've told, people have told me, well, you've rehabilitated Grant. I just wanted to understand him. And that's what I've tried to do in my work on the 18th President of the United States. And with that comment, I'll open the floor to questions. Uh, there's a question about Grant's relationship to slavery personally, okay? Grant, whose father is an abolitionist, Jesse Grant, nevertheless marries into a slave-owning family in St. Louis. Now, Julia Grant, his wife, never actually owned the slaves. Her father would never surrender title to them because, in fact, Grant at the dinner table, this is good son-in-law, father-in-law conversation. I say this, by the way, having just visited with my daughter and new son-in-law. <laughs> Um, and, and my son-in-law is very quiet and just sort of acknowledges everything I says with a in one ear, out the other attitude. Um, they had threatened to be here, and I still would have said that to them. Um, and, 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 and because Grant would say at the dinner table, if I ever get titled them, I'm going to free them. Grant was given a slave by his brother-in-law, a slave named William Jones. 
and Grant manumitted that slave, freed that slave in 1858 at a time when Grant was suffering seriously economically and when William Jones would have brought Ulysses S. Grant 1000 to $1,500 at the auction block. So it's an interesting thing to also point out that the last president who owned a slave freed that slave and as we know then led armies that freed hundreds of thousands more and put them into uh, blue uniforms. Uh, and once they were in blue uniforms, Grant fought for their equality as soldiers against people like Robert E. Lee. There's a little story. October 1864, Confederates have captured some Union soldiers who happen to be black. And Lee puts them to work on Confederate fortifications under Union fire. Grant hears about this from Benjamin Butler and says, he okays Butler's plan to put Confederate prisoners of war on work on Union entrenchments under Confederate lines of fire. Lee backs off. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. It was an administrative oversight. But by the way, I, can, I defend Confederate policy that says any captured African Americans can be returned to slavery. It's the color of the man wearing the uniform that matters to me. Grant's reply was, Thank you for doing this. I'll withdraw your guys as well. But I have to tell you that it's the color of the uniform that matters to me, not the color of the person wearing it. These are soldiers of the United States. You do that again, I'll retaliate in kind. Remember that any time you go to Arlington House and you hear somebody in the crowd talk about how Robert E. Lee was truly anti-slavery. Next question. Okay, to answer your first question first about William Henry Harrison and why is he ranked at all, I don't know. I don't run the poll. Ask the people at C-SPAN. I don't know that anybody who knows anything authoritative about the Harrison presidency, because Harrison himself never really got to exercise that power. And I've always thought the William Henry Harrison papers could be on a note card um, in, in terms of his presidential papers. So we just don't know. And, and I don't know why he's there. Okay, and I, but in 2009, I don't know why they put Barack Obama on there within months. Long before somebody else gave him the Nobel Peace Prize, people had already ranked him as a president. I was like, what's going on here? Um, uh, that said, um, your other question was about Robert Todd Lincoln and the Lincoln family. Grant and Lincoln got along well after a rough beginning. Lincoln wasn't always sure about Grant, and Grant often had to put a, Lincoln's playing politics behind Grant's back as a general out in the West. Uh, once they got together and got to know each other, they worked better. Grant's the only general to invite Lincoln to headquarters as opposed to Lincoln inviting himself. Mrs. Grant and Mrs. Lincoln did not get along, however. And that spilled over to General Grant as well. So when Grant comes to Washington right after Appomattox, uh, the president cannot tour the city. It's illuminated in celebration of the great Union victory. So Grant goes around in a carriage with Mrs. Lincoln. And Mrs. Lincoln is upset because they should cheer the carriage, the symbol of presidential power, and not the man who's in it, the hero of Appomattox. 
So she was very unpleasant during the carriage ride. The next day, Grant realized this, and Julia said, I really don't want to be with that woman. Let's not go to the theater tonight with them. And they go to New Jersey, and they're not at Ford's Theater that night. Okay? Afterwards, with Robert Todd Lincoln, there's a vague relationship. Robert Todd's a good Republican. He'll be in Garfield's cabinet as Secretary of War and the like. Uh, but there isn't an, an avid connection. Uh, Grant is at the dedication of the Lincoln tomb in Springfield. Um, and there's some, there's, there's some very um, emotional words about the 16th president. Well, it's interesting you ask that question because John Morton Bloom's The Progressive Presidents, a short volume on four progressive presidents, including both Roosevelt's, uh, was the model in terms of the title for my book that I published in 1998 with the University Press of Kansas called The Reconstruction Presidents, which dealt with all four presidents during Reconstruction. That is Lincoln, Johnson, Grant, and Rutherford B. Hayes. So I did the same sort of thing. It was modeled upon them. Mine ended up being a little longer for various reasons, but... Uh, uh, it, it's still a, a view of Reconstruction as presidential policy and looking at four consecutive presidents. I don't want to speak for what dead people would have thought uh, of people living. I, I think that uh, Bloom was a, the kind of person who, because he didn't work in that period, would have looked and talked to other people who did work in the period and look at the, the work that's coming out now. Um, and I, I think you know, that, that's how he would have based his assessment. What that assessment, so that's an issue of quality of mind more than anything else. What he would have concluded, I don't know. And, and I'll, that, that's the thing about counterfactuals and speculations. I could impose any kind of Rorschach test on this that I want to and really tell you what I think he ought to have thought. All I can say is that from what I know of, of Professor Bloom, he would have taken a look at the evidence that's now out there and the interpretations out there before rendering a decision, but that his book, The Progressive Presidents, was a model for my book, The Reconstruction Presidents. I don't think the, the, the issue about the, the scandals of the Grant administration, well, first of all, I have to remember some of them were not scandals of the Grant administration. Credit Mobier was a scandal of Republican congressmen and some Democratic congressmen in the 1860s before Grant became president. So I don't see how that, be, the revelation of that scandal is during the Grant administration, but I don't see how it has any impact on Grant. But any textbook will talk about Credit Mobier and stick it on Grant's uh, administration. That said, there are cabinet members, and there are cabinet members in previous administrations, subsequent administrations, who behaved unethically. The issue was, was Grant, as I, you know, Grant's got these first two initials that are very malleable, unconditional surrender grant and the like, even though, of course, his actual initials are a result, by the way, of government paperwork. Ulysses S. Grant's real name was Hiram Ulysses Grant. When he was getting ready to go to, and people called him Ulysses, they didn't like them and called him useless. <laughs> when he went to West Point, they, 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 they put you know, his initials on a trunk, and they looked at it and 
you're a 17-year-old boy and you don't want a trunk that says hug. <laughs> so you reverse the Ulysses and the Hiram. So that was Ulysses Hiram Grant. And he goes to West Point and the congressman that filled out the appointment papers had him as Ulysses S. Grant because Simpson was the maiden name of his mother, Hannah. And in fact, Grant could have refused to go to West Point on the grounds that he was Ulysses Hiram Grant, not Ulysses S. Grant. He becomes Ulysses S. Grant, and that's how we know him later on, though he'd always say he didn't know what the S was. Although when he's baptized for a second time near death in 1885, it looks like he was baptized, of all things, Ulysses Simpson Grant. So we've got that. The corruption, he's not, to, to talk about those malleable initials, he's not uniquely stupid. Most of the people who were involved in corrupt activity, other people were duped by them too. Some of them honored places. The Secretary of War, William Belknap, who resigned and just avoided impeachment and probable conviction on issues of uh, being involved in um, unethical dealings, the Secretary of War, He's buried in Arlington National Cemetery. So is Orville Babcock, Grant's private secretary, who left the White House under a cloud because it was understood that perhaps he had profited by trying to avoid investigation into defrauding the internal revenue when it came to distillery taxes, the so-called whiskey ring. What's interesting is everyone was smarter after the fact about these people, but at the time they weren't, and it was not uniquely that way. He was not uniquely interested in nepotism. We just talked about Robert Todd Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, near the end of the war, got his son Robert a position on Grant's staff. Today we would see a president hiding his son on the staff of the commanding general as a bad thing, just as the Bush family and what they had to go through about this. Um, so it's interesting to see what we see as corrupt and not corrupt. Okay, was there any corruption of the kind that we talk about when we talk about the Watergate affair? No. Was there any of the corruption that we could talk about in terms of what I find to be really corrupt behavior, the slaughtering of African Americans in the South to fix elections? No. So it all depends on what you think is corrupt. Are there people under you? Are those in workplaces? You know, people sometimes take one too many pens and five too many pads of paper and stuff like that. That's the level of corruption of the Grand Administration. We kind of celebrate it. You can go down to Boss Shepherd's now, a restaurant, and, 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 and I talk about monument removal and restoration. The uh, Alexander St- uh, Shepherd of Washington fame, a corrupt scandal associated with the Grand Administration. They had a statue of Alexander Shepherd. They took it away, and then they put it back. And they have an explanation about all of this. But you would never have normally have put a bar after deeply corrupt people. It was kind of, it was understood at the time. It wasn't ethical. Grant was as shocked as anybody else when he found out about it. And he found himself profoundly personally betrayed when those things happened. So it's the vice of your virtue. If you're extremely trusting in those around you and those around you betray you, are you stupid or were you just too trusting? <laughs>